from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. Posons-nous sérieusement la question de l'avenir que nous voulons et ayons tous ensemble le courage de le construire. Für uns in Deutschland ist das Bekenntnis zum vereinten Europa Teil unserer Staatsräson. A strong united Europe is a necessity for the world because an integrated Europe remains vital to our international order. This is the moment for Europe to lead the way towards a new vitality. Hello and welcome to the CR podcast. I'm Camina Martina Martinez and I head the CR's Brussels office and I'm hosting today's episodes. Today I'm joined by Ian Bonds, who is our director of foreign affairs, to discuss the European Union's elusive China policy. Welcome back to the podcast, Ian. Thanks very much, Camina. Ian, you like the US, you, you've been watching China closely for many, many years now. By contrast, me, much like the European Union, never thought I would have to be thinking so much about China. And yet a golden rule for every EU watcher at the moment is be aware, China is everywhere. Is this true? Is China really everywhere? Well, maybe not everywhere, but it's in more and more places. And to be honest, I haven't been watching China that long, certainly not as long as I've been watching Russia. But China has been a big factor in the world economy for a long time now. But what we've seen in the last few years, certainly in the last decade or so, since Xi Jinping came to power, is that China has become more and more of a player in global politics as well. And that's what's new and I think in some ways difficult for the EU and the US to, to deal with. As you said, it's been at least a decade that we should have been worrying a little bit about China and its influence in the world. And yet, before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the European Union didn't even think about China. And surely the European Union's China policy was rather confusing. Why do you think that was? Yeah, I mean, the EU's China policy from 2019, when it published a communication on this, was essentially an attempt to find a balanced policy. So it characterized China as a partner in some areas. So, for example, on climate change, that sort of thing, as an economic competitor, but also as a systemic rival promoting an alternative model of governance. Now, that was already something quite radical for the EU, because prior to that, really, the focus had been just on those first two elements, on China as a potential partner in some areas and on China as an economic competitor, but basically a competitor who more or less agreed on what the rules of the game ought to be while wanting a few more of the referees and umpires to be Chinese. So what the EU started to see, and I would say this really does relate to Xi Jinping and maybe even to Xi Jinping's sort of second term as general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party. So that's sort of, you know, 2017 onwards, was people started to think, well, China is actually becoming more and more assertive globally. And we can't ignore the fact that China is offering a different model of how the world should be run and how countries should do business. And we talk about the rules-based international order, but China has a different idea of what those rules ought to be. And that's something that the EU had not previously grappled with at all. And if you say, well, why is this still such a kind of confused mess? I think the answer is that between the 27 members of the EU, there's still a different sense of where do you put that balance? Partner, okay, maybe not so much, but competitor versus 
something more worrying, a systemic rival, that's something we haven't quite got to grips with across the whole of the 27th. Yeah, and also, of course, we not only have European Union member states, but we also have the European Union institutions, right? So we have Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, who gave a rather harsh speech on China at the beginning of April, incidentally the same day that Spanish Prime Minister Pedro Sánchez went to China to sort of ask she to mediate in between Russia and Ukraine. Then we also had German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, who went to China in November, ostensibly with a business agenda. And of course, there was Macron's and von der Leyen herself's visits earlier this month, which sparked outrage in many places in the world. Ian, you're not only an expert on China, but you're also a former diplomat. So can I ask you a question that I get all the time here in Brussels? What on earth is going on? Because you can have different ideas, and I do understand that we don't know what the balance between these different elements of our China policy is, but do we need to show it to the world? Do we need to do it this way? I think that's always a problem when you're dealing with China, and China is such a big economic factor. And it's always been a problem for the EU in the past, because quite often when there were, for example, problems with China's human rights record. In Brussels, the member states would kind of gear up the external action service and instructions would go to the EU delegation in Beijing to go and demarche the Chinese, to make a formal approach to the Chinese about human rights, very often human rights. So the EU delegation would go in and no doubt get a very frosty response from the Chinese, but they would have carried out the instructions that had been agreed in Brussels among the member states. And then gradually, the embassies of the member states in Beijing would go in and tell the Chinese, well, you know, that's, that's just the commission talking. You really shouldn't take that too seriously. But here is this excellent economic agreement that we would like to finalize with you. Or here is a nice plot of land where you could invest and build a factory. Or would you like us to invest in a low-cost manufacturing facility somewhere in deepest China? And very often, the message that had been agreed in Brussels as the kind of strong political message to be delivered to China was undercut by the member states in their bilateral dealings with China. And I think that's that's still to some extent a problem. But I mean, I want to turn this question back on you, because what's really been striking for me is that even within the EU institutions, it kind of feels like they're having trouble all singing from the same hymn sheet. So as you rightly say, von der Leyen was quite tough on China. The European Parliament is even tougher because some of its members are under sanctions at the moment, yet it feels like Charles Michel is pursuing a different approach altogether. So this is kind of turning Kissinger back on its head in a way, but who speaks for the EU in China? I think the safest answer to that is nobody really, as frustrating as that can be. You're right that there are different views within the institutions, but I think in order to understand why, we sort of need to understand where we're coming from. So von der Leyen made a very, very harsh speech for Brussels standards, right? So obviously there are different views on that. But she didn't really come out with the China policy until three months ago. And I am unsure that these views, her views, are shared in other corners of the European Commission. Borrell himself, he was supposed to go to China as well in this diplomatic flurry that we had this month. He didn't get to go because of COVID, which I think is all very 2020. 
but that's a different question. But he did write a blog on his views on China. And terribly, he sort of reaffirmed this idea that you were talking about of the European Union's 2019 views on China with different components and, you know, a partner on things like climate change, but also rival, but at the same time, somebody who can talk sense to Vladimir Putin. So the institutions are divided. I think when it comes to choreography, and that is that is where I struggle to understand. I do understand where all this comes from, because, you know, the whole idea that the European Union itself thinks that trade and entangling one another with rules and all these kind of things is a good idea. And they have been applying this to themselves and to the world until Putin's invasion of Ukraine showed the limits of this theory. So that's all very fine. But what I don't understand is why would you voluntarily put all this difference for the world to see? And why would you play into China's hands in this respect. For example, one of the things that I think we forget when we're talking about Macron's and von der Leyen's trip, and that we criticize a lot how Macron got the red carpet and von der Leyen did not, this was not done by the Chinese. I mean, this was a future of the trip. Macron decided that he would invite von der Leyen on the trip, presumably to give some sort of sense of unity, knowing fully well that because of the whole diplomatic choreography itself, he was going to get the honors of head of state and government that he is, and she was not. And also, another thing that we often forget because von der Leyen is such a strong leader, is that she's not supposed to be representing the European Union abroad. She's not the European Union's foreign policy chief. That would be Borrell, and to some extent as well, Charles Michel, who is supposed to be the number that you call when you want to call Europe. Right. But von der Leyen has been doing a lot of the heavy lifting of the European Union's foreign policy because of her very strong stance in Ukraine and because of the importance of things that the Commission does have competencies on, like trade and digital and other things. So I'm just wondering why is it that we are not able as Europeans to understand that it's okay to have differences and the European Union not being a perfect place, but there's a lot of cooks, things are complicated. But once we get into a common position, it's normally very difficult for the European Union to backtrack on that position. And we can think about the war in Ukraine, we can think about the response to Brexit or the single market for what matters as examples. But do we really need to expose all those differences to the entire world by clumsy diplomacy? That is what I, I think we are not necessarily doing very well. And also perhaps we are a little bit too naive in a number of the things that we think about China. For example, I know that the European Union leaders that do not necessarily want to take a position on China at the moment because it is easier for them to remain neutral, so to speak. Some still think that China could be an honest broker between Moscow and Kiev. I think that's absolutely wrong because China has already picked a site in this conflict and it's not ours. A few leaders believe that the US is sleepwalking into an unnecessary conflict in Taiwan. And maybe you can walk us a little bit through that later, but I think that's absolutely incorrect as well. That's putting China and the US on the same footing. And then there is this whole idea of the European Union needing to find its own voice in the world and be strategically autonomous and a third superpower. So perhaps the end goal of this is a good thing, right? This is to be an alternative, is to be a strong power in the world. But I just think the process that we are using to get there is the wrong one. 
Yeah, I think that's a very good point that you have put your finger on there. Of course, you should have your policy disagreements behind closed doors, and then you should come out and speak as one in public. That's a real struggle for the EU, not just on China, but as a general rule. We've seen it with Viktor Orban's unusual position on Ukraine and Russia. We've seen it in the Polish government's attempts to go in exactly the opposite direction from Macron and say, well, the only thing that really matters is the transatlantic relationship. And that's what we have to build up, not strategic autonomy. So there is quite a lot of indiscipline, as I would see it, within the EU at the moment. But specifically on China, I think the problem is that the 2019 strategic outlook remains the only thing that the EU has agreed. Now, it needs a China strategy. It needs an updated China strategy. And I agree with you that that's a strategy which has to take account of the fact that China has chosen a side in Russia's war against Ukraine, and it's not ours. But that's been a real struggle for some European countries to come to grips with. I think in some ways, this may be a good moment for those who think that the EU needs to take a slightly tougher stance with China to speak out, because we had this last weekend, this row over the interview given by the Chinese ambassador in Paris, Lu Xiaoyu, who basically was asked about Ukraine and first of all said something unhelpful about Crimea, but then having started to dig himself into a hole, thought he'd better keep digging and said that none of the countries of the former Soviet Union were, as it were, actual sovereign states because there had never been any international agreement on this, which is quite breathtaking because, of course, they're all members of the United Nations. And that is something that China agreed to in the UN Security Council. So for him to suggest that Euro somehow or other, they're not real countries, that's highly problematic. Now, I think there are signs that the Chinese foreign ministry is kind of rowing back on his remarks. But clearly, it's upset the Baltic states in particular, but others as well. But I think it will also give some pause, even to people in France, that do you really think China can be an honest broker in the war if it doesn't even believe that Ukraine is a real state, if it actually you know, shares the view of Vladimir Putin that, that Ukraine is not a proper country? So this may be exactly the, the right moment for Europe to try to move forward with a revision of that 2019 document and to admit that, yeah, maybe there are still three elements, three legs to the stool, but the strength of the stool labelled systemic rival is considerably greater than that of the leg labelled partnership these days. And that even if you look at China's behaviour over climate change, they have talked a better game than they have so far delivered in terms of still making coal-fired power stations, not only for China itself, but also for their Belt and Road partners in other parts of the world. So I think China's diplomacy has been quite clumsy. We're a very long way away from Deng Xiaoping saying, bide your time and hide your light. And China, in a sense, growing rather stealthily and becoming very influential in the world by playing the game more or less by the same rules as everybody else, or at least pretending to. And Xi Jinping has taken that much more in the direction of saying, well, if we don't like these rules, we will write our own rules. Right. Absolutely agree with you. But can I play the devil's advocate since I'm recording this from Brussels where views differ on that and turn this question around? We've been seeing a more assertive China on the global stage, but we surely have been seeing 
a more problematic US as well. Transatlantic relations have been something of a roller coaster, right, since Trump entered the White House in 2016. And while the Biden administration has done a lot to repair some of the damage of the Trump years, it's also true that Biden's Afghanistan debacle and the IRA have ruffled many feathers on the side of the Atlantic. And they're also obviously mounting fears in some EU capitals about the possibility of a Trump-esque figure back in the White House at a time when obviously Europe needs America supporting Ukraine, but also Washington needs Europe in Taiwan. So how do we square that circle, right? How do we make sure that the European Union and Europe in general hedges against both an assertive China, but also the possible worsening of of transatlantic relations if there is a change in the White House? Is that an exaggerated fear? How do we deal with that? Yeah, so this is where I think that Macron is sort of half right on the question of strategic autonomy. And I mean that in the sense that I do think that it's actually valuable for Europe to build up its own capabilities to be able to act autonomously if it has to. Where I disagree with him, or at least where I think perhaps he chose the wrong topic to sound forthright on strategic autonomy, is over China and Taiwan. Because I don't think this is a question of Europe shouldn't get dragged into the conflicts of other people, or that in some sense, we need to have equidistance may be the wrong term, but at any rate, you know, to somehow balance our relationship with China against our relationship with the US. I think the issue that we need to understand more in Europe is that America is still our ally. But America is becoming distracted by what's going on in the Asia-Pacific area. And there is the risk of more erratic U.S. politics. I mean, this is not something that's entirely unknown. There were times, even in the Cold War, when the Americans were distracted by things going on elsewhere. You know, the Vietnam War is is a good example of that. But that was at a time when actually the Europeans spent a lot more of their GDP on defence and were a lot more capable of at least dealing with the early stages of a conflict with the Warsaw Pact. What's happened since the end of the Cold War is that defence spending in Europe has fallen much more rapidly than defence spending in the US and European capabilities are now pretty poor in most cases, even though you could say, well, the direct threat that Europe faces is much less than it was during the Cold War. We're actually more dependent on the US than we were during the Cold War. So let's talk about strategic autonomy in terms of Europe building up its capabilities and being able to deal with a distracted America rather than Europe building up its capabilities so that it can be somehow a kind of third pole on the globe. I don't think there is room for three poles on the globe, to be honest. And of course, that assumes that Europe will be dependent on the US for its security when it comes to Russia. And I just wonder whether you think that there is a danger that European leaders' attitudes and Macron's words and other people's actions towards China could make the Americans actually less willing to help Europe with Russia and even help the Republicans in the US election next year. I would separate, actually, the Republicans from Trump. Because there are still a lot of Republicans who understand the stake that the US has in European security and who also understand that Russia, with the size of its nuclear arsenal, is still a significant competitor for the US. 
I think the problem for the Europeans is that really we should be able to deal with the conventional arsenal that Russia has without having to rely on the Americans. I mean, the fact is that collectively, Europe spends more on defence than Russia does, but it gets a lot less for the money that it spends. And the question we should be asking ourselves is what can we do to improve on that situation? What we can't do is to provide the same nuclear guarantee for our security that the Americans can. And you need the American conventional presence to give you the linkage, to give you, in a sense, the guarantee that American lives are on the line in Europe and that therefore the US nuclear umbrella extends over us as well as over the American forces that are deployed in Europe. But at the moment, UK and French nuclear forces, although clearly they are relevant to the balance in Europe, are on a much, much smaller scale. And in some ways, certainly in the case of the British, rather less flexible than what the Americans have to offer. So I really want to put the stress on the fact that Europeans need to do more for their own conventional defence capabilities and not to think of this in terms of either replacing or standing up to the Americans, but as having a capability that you need for your own defence, regardless of what else the Americans might have to deal with in the rest of the world. Absolutely agreed. Can I use the last question to sort of ask you to take your crystal ball and tell me how do you think the European Union's China policy will evolve over the next year or so? Do you think we'll be seeing a more united view from the European Union? Yeah, I think it'll be evolutionary. It will take the 2019 strategic outlook as its starting point, and it will just alter the balance somewhat. Maybe not as much as some of the hawks would like, but maybe more than particularly some of the economic operators who have invested very heavily in, in China would like. But I mean, it seems to me that there are a number of areas where I would expect to see some evolution. In fact, you could see the evolution even without the strategy being rewritten. So that's in terms of European supply chains, trying to reduce the extent of our dependency on China for certain critical materials, critical components. That seems to me to be a very important part of this. Some of it will be about the geopolitics. And I think even in France, there are foreign policy professionals who think that the way that Macron expressed himself was not helpful and that actually Europe has to show that it has an interest in the status quo around Taiwan. We're not saying we're going to recognize Taiwan as an independent country. There is a long-standing consensus on a one-China policy. And if you start to move away from that, then actually you provide a pretext for China to say, well, no, you know, you are now doing something which is a threat to our vital national interests. But part of defending that status quo is saying, well, there's one-China policy, but at the same time, there should be no use of force to change the status quo in Taiwan. And we will occasionally sail ships into the area to show that we have a continuing interest in that and that we don't accept that the Taiwan Strait is China's national waters. It's an international strait and a particularly important international strait for trade between Europe and Northeast Asia. It's an area where there are lots of, a lot of ships passing to and fro, carrying trade to and from Europe, and that's important to us. So I think I would expect to see some strengthening on that. But at the same time, we're not going to drop the references to areas of cooperation because we do need 
China alongside us on fighting climate change. Indeed, you know, in many respects, China could do more than we could at pace because of the centralized planning system in China. If they decide that they really will get out of the coal business, then no country is more capable of doing that at pace because they don't have to worry as much as Joe Biden does about the coal miners of West Virginia or as Europeans have to about the coal miners of Poland or Germany. So I think we, we need the Chinese on that. We need them on health issues. They haven't been superbly cooperative on uh, things like the sources of COVID-19, but they are important players in global health issues. So we need to work with them on that. And even in the economic area, as long as we're not talking about dependency, then I think there is mutually profitable business to be done between China and the European Union. And I think in some respects, we're always going to be in a slightly different position from the Americans on this, because Europe, for all the talk of a third superpower, the reality is Europe doesn't really see itself as a geopolitical rival to China. We don't mind if China rises, as long as China rises within a framework of rules that we are reasonably happy with. Whereas I think for many people in the US, the rise of China means the end of American supremacy. And that's something which they view as inherently threatening in itself. Ian, thanks so much. This has been really, really insightful. So thank you so much for joining me in this week's CR podcast to explain all things EU and China. And thank you also to everybody listening at home. If you'd like to stay informed on everything Europe, subscribe to the CR wherever you get your podcast. Goodbye and see you next time. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.